welcome to the Broadway Binge Podcast. I'm Jeremy. And I'm Hannah. And we are going to tell you the history of American musical theater by reviewing and ranking all of the most important musicals from Showboat to today. And this is an important one today. We are talking about Gypsy, which opened in 1959 with music by Jules Stein, lyrics by Stephen Sondheim, and a book by Arthur Lawrence. Cool. I'm in New York today, so um, our sound quality is going to be better than usual. Yeah, no, this is, this is going to be great. Um, I always love when Hannah and I could do this in person. And especially for such an important musical, this show, um, I don't know if you all know this, but many people consider this to be the greatest musical of all time. Well. Um, there are a few, I mean, so I'd say the most prestigious role someone can have in musical theater criticism is being the chief yeah. musical theater critic for New York Times. And um, three different, <laughs> uh, I'd say like that's generally considered. Fair, fair generally, enough, fair enough, fair enough. You don't have to agree, but like one would usually one consider. One would hold the belief. Yeah, so um, Clive Barnes, who was the critic from 65 to 77, Frank Rich uh, from 80 to 93, and then Ben Brantley, who's the current one. Mm. All three of them are on the record as saying that they think Gypsy is the greatest music, American musical theater or like Ben Bradley said, like it may be the greatest, which is just like unnecessary hedge. <laughs> it I, may be the greatest. I hate when people hedge. Side note: I hate when people hedge on saying like, you know what? This might be the greatest f- musical on this topic of the past year. Well, it's that's like, just, just non-committal. Just, just non-committal. Yeah. yeah. If, if you're not gonna make a bold claim, then just don't make a claim. Mm-hmm. Like I, I hate like it's maybe the greatest music of all time. Like it's your opinion. Just because like you can just say it's your favorite musical ever. Like you don't need. To hedge, we understand that just because you say it's the greatest doesn't mean it is the greatest. Like, so you can just say it. Well, to that end, uh, yeah. Gypsy. Gypsy. <laughs> um, so basically, many people think that Gypsy is the best musical of all time. And we're going to go into detail about why. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know if I agree with that opinion. In fact, I don't agree with that opinion. <laughs> but we'll I definitely there. see why people say that. And I definitely think this is a great, fantastic musical. Um yeah, I like Gypsy a lot. I will say. Yeah. Um, well, we'll get to it. I don't want to. I don't want to show my hand too early. Well, um, but but well, let's talk about our experience. Our experience. With the yeah. yeah. Well, Jeremy, what's your experience with Gypsy? So I've only seen it live once. I saw a college production of it. Um, my the theater company I was in in college two years after I graduated, they did Gypsy. Um, I thought it was really good. Um, I was very proud of them, and it. I can say that Gypsy is definitely a show that you should see live if you want to understand why it's good. Um, there was a movie in 1961, and then there was a TV movie in the 90s. I've heard the original movie was bad, the TV movie's okay, but I've heard that neither of them are that great as an adaptation. Yeah, I feel like there's not like a well-respected film version of Gypsy in the way that a lot of the other shows we've talked about from this era have like a really um, significant film adaptation. You know? I Yeah, I agree. And also, the soundtrack of Gypsy is not like... Maybe some people could just listen to it in the background, like for fun music they just want to pick. Yeah. But there's, it just doesn't grab me as much. Like, there's mm. not really a world in which, like, hmm, I just want to listen to music right now. I'm going to put on Gypsy. Oh, that's interesting. I don't know. I do really like the score. I like the score more than other scores we've listened to. Like, I think I prefer this to Music Man. But I yes. do also agree there's something about it that's like, not background music in the way that like I would put on Music Man while I did something. I don't know that I could listen to Gypsy while I like went about my day. Yeah. yeah. Well, so I think the reason the show is so good is because of the book. Um, mm. And the music is good because it's in service of that book. Sure. So I had never really gotten the Gypsy hype until I saw it. Right. And when I saw it, and this wasn't even a professional production, you know, it was just kids. But when I saw it, I was like, oh, okay, I understand. You know I understand why people say good. this is the best it's musical iconic, of all time. Yeah. Um, 
Well, okay, so yeah. I have seen Gypsy a bunch of times. Um, I saw it with Bernadette Peters. Oh, okay. I saw it with Patti Lapone. Oh, you're an expert. I'm an ac- well, well, let's not go that far. Um, <laughs> and I just saw it recently. They did it in Philly at the Arden, uh, staring, uh, starring this tremendous Philly local actress, Mary Martello, who was really wonderful in the speak role. Up. This really wonderful actress, Mary Martello. <laughs> um, okay, yeah. So you've seen professional. You've seen three professional. Yeah, versions. I've seen three professional versions of the show. Um, yeah, I have a funny relationship with it, just because my mom hates this musical. So I'm just like that was always the way I encountered is, it as a young person, was just that my mom hates this musical. Your mom hating this musical is extremely funny to me. I, yeah, I don't know. I mean, some background. My mom's not like a stage mom. My mom loves the theater, though, um, and is a big personality and just hates this show and hates Burnett Peters and hates Patti Lapone. Oh. Yeah. I also hate Patti Lapone. That's no, What's okay, that no, hold about? on. Sorry, sorry. I don't. <laughs> that, that was an example of me not hedging and just like making a bold statement. I don't actually hate Patti Lapone. I don't actually hate Patti Lapone. I'm sorry to like her fans. I just never really got the hype. Everyone's like, oh, Patti Lapone, she's the new Ethel Merman. Like, well, like Patti Lapone, it's like, I, any given day, like, I'm always going to take a, a production, like, starring Burnett Peters over a production starring Patti Lapone. Why must we pit them against one another? Apples and oranges. That's Bringing true. different things to the table, you know? That's true. And, like, I didn't really like her Mrs. Lovett that much. I felt it was a little too serious. Interesting. Mrs. I feel it, like it Mrs. Weird. Lovett should be funnier. It was sort of arched in, like, a weird way. Yeah, it was less, I agree with that, it was, like, less generous. It wasn't an Angela Lansbury. If, and the other thing yeah. with Patti Lapone is anytime I see, ugh, I've never seen her live. So anyway, this is all absurd. <laughs> but anytime I see like videos of her listener, I always hear it as Patti Lapone. I feel like she doesn't lose herself into the role as much mm. as I want her to. It's like Patti Lapone does this thing. I mean, she is very old school in that way, in the way that like, I don't think Ethel Merman per se disappeared into any roles. Although I don't know, I never saw Ethel Merman live. That's Maybe true. I, I guess she's known for not being a tremendous actress. So like, I guess, yeah. No, Ethel Merman. Oh, so Ethel, Merman. Uh, Patty Lapone is known for being a great actress. <laughs> so Ethel Merman, yeah, I guess she was not losing herself in this role either, but maybe it's because so much of me listening to Ethel Merman growing up was just from Gypsy, so I just associate her with Rose so much. So if you were around in the 50s, you might have just thought, oh, it's Ethel Merman playing a character again. But for me, it was, they were so intertwined, Ethel Merman and sure. Rose. Do you remember Courtney Silman, who we went to college with? No. There's this girl we went to college with who I used to hang out with who just did a really good Ethel Merman impression, but the way she'd do it is she would just do an impression while singing the words Ethel Merman's. <laughs> she'd just be like, Ethel Merman! That's funny. <laughs> Every time I hear Ethel Merman's name, that's what I want to do. Anyway, so now we've taken a really a sharp right off of the exit, um, um, yeah. <laughs> off of the highway, Mark Gypsy, and uh, we're going to get back on the highway. Absolutely. <laughs> so I guess we'll start off with some background history information. <laughs> Um, and we're going to introduce some new characters now. So it's 59. Uh, this is a big year for musicals. Sound of Music, um, Gypsy, Fiorello, which right. I don't know. Right, Sound of Music. Sound of Music and Fiorello actually. Uh, I don't know what Fiorello is. So there. it's about Fiorello LaGuardia. I still don't the know mayor what that is. Of, the famous mayor of New York. This is the airport, LaGuardia Oh, airport. okay, yes, I know what that is. Um, yes. And it was written by Harnick and Bach, I think their names are. They're the Sound of, uh, no, sorry. They're the Fiddler on the Roof guys. Oh. The Fiddler on the Roof guys wrote a musical about Mayor LaGuardia. And it tied, I think this might be the only tie ever for Best Musical in the Tonys. It tied Whoa. with Sound of Music and Gypsy Lost. Wait, that's hysterical. Sound of Music, Fiorello, and Gypsy all were and, the same year. And Once Upon a Mattress. Which, that doesn't matter. <laughs> <laughs> we, might, we might talk about that we on the might. show soon. But just in terms of like which one of those should have taken home the bacon... The yeah. fact that Gypsy didn't want win and that Fiorello tied to so, the music is hysterical. I, I do think we're underrating Fiorello. Neither of us have seen it, and no. allegedly it was like beloved at the time. Um, and you know, it, it, this is the same people that like a couple years earlier gave it to Music Man over uh, West Side Story. So what the hell. Well, I mean, no, this just makes me think about and like, Billy Elliot over Next to Normal. Oh yeah, that happened. 
but next to number one, a Pulitzer. Like, what? Yeah. It's a confusing, it's a confusing, it's confusing. time. Awards yeah, we should, don't we, make sense. I mean, it's, it's weird. Like, whenever people talk about musical theater, like, the Tonys are always, like, what's something that people think about. I feel like the yeah. Tonys are a bigger part of, like, musical theater than the other respective awards are from their industries. But it's all stupid and absurd, and it doesn't matter. Yeah, it doesn't matter at all. Um, okay, but basically, just to let you know, 59 was a big year. Hmm. Um, okay. And now we're sort of entering the 60s, which is going to be, like, a very different feeling type of uh, scene. Like, the sort of just, like, music um, and the sort of Broadway scene. It's less, like... Rodgers and Hammerstein totally created this form and every new musical they made was like advancing the form in a big way mm-hmm. and now the 60s we've sort of like for the most part found that form mm-hmm. and there's just going to be a whole bunch of like good musicals in the 60s that might not push things forward as much but like this is still sort of when we're thinking the golden age of Broadway some people are going to say Oklahoma to Fiddler on the Roof in 64 hmm. and then even if that's the end of the golden age a lot of musicals in the later 60s are still like of that same rough quality. Interesting. So we're sort of starting that here, and the reason I bring that up is because we're introducing a guy, David Merrick, who is the one of the two producers, one of the two main producers of this show. And David Merrick is going to be absolutely huge in the 60s. Um, but Gypsy was sort of his first super famous show. There were a few before this, like two or three before this, that I hadn't really heard of. But um, other musicals that David Merrick is going to produce in the future include Carnival, Stop the World, I Want to Get Off, <laughs> Oliver, Hello Dolly, Promises, Promises, and he also produced some plays like Rosencrantz and Guildenstern are Dead, the what? original one of that. Um, I think 42nd Street as well. I didn't write that down here, but I'm pretty sure he did that in like 1980. So uh, David Merrick is a huge producer. Like maybe we could call him the George Abbott of his day, except without the directing element. Um, so wait, what's his story? How did he? How did he come to be? Uh, so he was born in St. Louis to Jewish parents. Um, right. The fact that his Wikipedia article says he was born to Jewish parents makes me think that he probably like didn't identify as Jewish mm. growing up. Okay. Uh, Merrick is not a Jewish name. That strikes me as like middle name or something. Or who knows? Maybe it is. Um, Speculation on the part of Jeremy Berman. Yeah, he went to uh, he went to Wash U for college. He went to a law school in St. Louis, but then he left his legal career in 1940 to become oh. a theatrical producer. This could well, be you, Jeremy, yeah, one day. Yeah. Yeah, so he was uh, pretty well known. A couple years after this in 61, this is like the, the story, the little anecdote he's most famous for. Like every book I have on Broadway has this anecdote. Wikipedia has this anecdote. The theater class I took in college has this anecdote. <laughs> this is like his big story. Okay. So he um, produced this mediocre show uh, called Subways Are For Sleeping, which was like pretty badly reviewed and not doing well. So what he did is he went out and found looked in the phone book and found seven people with the same exact first and last names as the seven major theater critics in New York newspapers. And he went out and got their permission. He made a poster with like the photographs of these like random guys, these random men. Um, and then like quotes next to it, like subways are for sleeping is the best musical of all time, stuff like that. And then in big letters, it said seven out of seven are ecstatically unanimous about subways are for sleeping. Um, and th- he was only able to put it in one newspaper cause the other papers like didn't want to run this but he put it in like you know subways and stuff and the ad was so funny and so popular um that it just actually kept the show running and like kept the seats filled for about half a year was he like do you think he was like self-aware like enough that he like knew it was like the ad was oh yeah was yeah ad famous because it was oh yeah it was, it was a gimmick it was like a funny gimmick i right. uh, gotta have a gimmick that's nice. um so oh, that's good that's good that's that's a nice little things to come okay yes, anyway um, um <laughs> and I love gimmicks uh, and uh and uh, 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 uh. uh. 
<laughs> so he is a real prankster, this guy, David Merritt. So he's fun. He's a fun guy. Yes. A, so, fun, a fun character. So Gypsy Rose Lee was a famous burlesque right. okay. uh, so dancer. Right, plot, the plot of Gypsy, Gypsy um, Rose Lee. She was a real person, yes. very famous, and she wrote some memoirs in 1957 where she talked about growing up in like the sort of vaudeville circuit with her overbearing mother, who was not maybe as overbearing and as villainous as this musical makes her seem. Um, but, you know, they played it up for drama. So David Merrick really read this and really liked the idea, and he really wanted Ethel Merman to play the mother, and mm-hmm. for the mother to be the main character of the musical, not Gypsy Rose Lee. Mm. Um, Gypsy would be, sort of be the secondary character, as we have in the final version of the show. And um, so he got Ethel Merman on board. They brought on another producer named Leland Hayward, who had started as a talent agent, and he was like a big talent agent. He represented Fred Astaire, Ginger Rogers, Jimmy Stewart, Ernest Hemingway, Boris Karloff, Judy Garland, and he even dated some of his clients like Greta Garbo, Catherine Hepburn. Weren't they both gay? Sorry, sidebar. Greta Garbo and Catherine Hepburn? I'm pretty sure Catherine Hepburn was bi. Okay, Google I, it. I, Google I believe it. you. Things that I care about. Continue. No, I, no, I believe you. That I makes mean, a lot of sense. Not to speculate, but to speculate. Yeah. Okay. And there's, so. there's probably way more buying gay people in the past than oh, we yeah. know of. They did exist before, um, <laughs> you know. Yeah. And um, so he sold his talent agency at one point and decided to become a Broadway producer. And um, the three big shows he produced are South Pacific, which, you know, was a huge hit, and then Gypsy, which is this, and Sound of Music, which was in the same year. So 59 was a big year for this guy. Um, wow. So there were so they knew they had their big star and they were trying to figure out who's going to be the team to write this. So for the book, they first went to Comden and Green, who were sort of like the comedian characters who did right. on the town. Right, we talked about them. Wouldn't have worked for this show. So no, it would have been a different feel. So they turned it down, which is great. And then other people who turned down composing the music. Oh, so they went to Arthur Lawrence next, who wrote the book for West Side Story and was mm-hmm. really more of a playwright than a, a book writer, which is why he writes some of the best musical theater books, I think, is because he takes the He's, material yeah. seriously. Mm-hmm. Um, and then for the music, they went to both Erling Ber- Irving Berlin and Cole Porter, I think, they, those guys both would have written music and lyrics. Right. Um, and those guys are geniuses, but this was definitely way past their prime. Mm-hmm. Um, and they would have deprived us of some of these amazing Sondheim lyrics. Mm-hmm. So I think it's for the best that those guys turn it down. Um, and so they got Sondheim, and Sondheim wanted to also write the music. He had never mm-hmm. written music and lyrics for a Broadway show that had opened before. Mm-hmm. Um, but Ethel Merman wanted there to be an, she didn't want an unknown guy. Like Sondheim was just the lyricist for West Side Story at this point. He'd never right. written music. So Sondheim was kind of pissed off, was like, oh, I want to do it. But um, Oscar Hammerstein, who was his mentor, was like, nah, you should do it. Like, come on, like, come on, just do it. Just do it. Yeah. So Sondheim did it, and they got Jules Stein who um, has been described as the last of the great Tin Pan Alley composers. He was mm. born in 1905. So, you know, he was, like, younger than a lot of those Berlin Cole Porter characters, but, you know, older than most of the people who we're talking about at this point. Um, his other musicals you would have heard of are Gentlemen Prefer Blondes, which we skipped over. Maybe I'll do a mini-sode about it. I don't know. <laughs> and then Funny Girl, which we'll do later, was his big one after this. And you can kind of hear, like, don't rain on my parade, Rose's turn. You can kind yeah. of like see how those are by the same guy. Well, it's interesting. Okay, so just hearing this background, I feel like a lot of the, it sounds like there was tension between like an older generation and a younger generation in the writing of the music, mm-hmm. which feels consistent with the plot of the show. And so that, um, I don't know, that makes a lot of sense to me. Yeah. Uh, and yeah, that's cool. No, absolutely. That's cool. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, Jerome Robbins also was involved in this because, you know, this is an episode of Broadway Binge, so that <laughs> means uh, Jerome Robbins has to yep, be working on certainly. it. <laughs> um <laughs> And um, actually, Robbins is the one who brought in Sondheim because, you know, he trusted Sondheim from West Side Story. Sure. And we'll talk later about some of, like, the behind-the-scenes writing the music of the show stories. 
But um, I sort of get the idea that Jules Stein wrote some of these tunes off on his own, and then Sondheim and Berlin, uh, Son, sorry, Sondheim mm-hmm. and um, Robbins were off like actually sort of putting everything together and making it happen. So I think there is sort of this like they got this old guy writing the music who's good at writing this genre of music, yeah. but then like the the youngsters are the ones sort of like crafting the show. Uh, that makes Sondheim, sense. Robbins, and Lawrence, which was the West Side. So you have the West Side Story team swap out Lenny Bernstein, who's also young like those guys, bring in a different old guy to write the music. But then, mm-hmm. like, the, that young core, and then David Merrick, the producer, this is the very beginning of his career. So, huh. yeah. Have we talked about the, I think it's called the Q Factor before? No, what's the Q Factor? There's this, I think it's the Q Factor. I had this um, theater teacher once talk to me about this is sort of, uh, this has like limited reach, but they did a study um, of. Broadway shows that had tremendous success financially, and they looked at the ratio of new collaborators to old, um, and they found that most shows that did extremely well had a very specific ratio, and they called it the Q factor, and it basically was a mix of old and new collaborators. Um, so you look at Hamilton, right? It's like Lou manuel and it's several of his people, like you have Christopher Jackson, you have people who are returning uh, from previous projects, you know, the same same music director he's always working with. Uh, what's his name? Uh, Lackmore? Yeah, Lackmore. Yeah. Alex Lackmore. Um, but... Also, new faces, new blood in the room, and there's this idea that like when you have the right ratio of like tried and true collaborators who you have a language with, but also new blood who are going to pressure you and push you in new directions, like that tends to be the recipe for gold, mm-hmm. which makes sense with Gypsy. Yeah. Anyway, S- sidetrack. Alex Lackmore deserves a lot of credit. Oh my god. How many? So how many of you have heard of a musical director before for or like Honestly, an orchestrator? Yeah, like. Um, like I know there's one guy who did some stuff with Sondheim. I'm, I'm forgetting his name, but like eventually we'll come to him and like I, I recognize that guy's name. Yeah. Um, Shout out to Lin Manuel Miranda though for also like putting his name out there. I, th- I mean, yeah, like to Lin's credit, like he doesn't try to act like Alex Lockmore doesn't exist. No, you know. Yeah, because I mean Lin Manuel is like amazing at writing lyrics and like coming up with tunes, but like some of these like intricate sort of orchestrations, like that's not Lin Manuel's thing. So yeah. like. Um, like Alex Lackamore, I hope we're pronouncing it correctly, like is like known for, you know, he's so much of the sound of these shows. And um, it's great that like we sort of just like casually know him, even though like neither of us has researched this topic. Well, we just know who he is. It's also, I feel like it's changing. This is a sidebar, but it's a good one. Um, I was just talking with, I'm working on a, a musical called Soft Butter right now that is going to be an ant fest at Ars Nova. Uh, and uh, there's the our incredible music director, Jacob Jarrett. We were talking last night about how like, the trend of letting bands kind of create their own music more, like the role of the MD is changing and becoming more, I think more prominent. I don't know if I that's love that. true. But well, Jacob was telling me that Waitress, um, the band like kind of created their own parts. Like it wasn't oh. scored in advance, which makes sense because that's how Sarah Bareilles does music when she's on tour. Anyway, the point is, I think that like there's some sort of a shift happening back to like empowering the MD. Uh, I don't know, and I don't. I feel like you know, in the old times, like there was a master orchestrator who was a composer, and they had control over everything. Um, yeah, and it feels like maybe there's a shift in how we're making musicals. Who's to say? And almost like a music director who lets the band create their own stuff, even though they might have less control over the product. Yeah, they're almost more. Um, it almost makes them more important because they need to be able to like keep all of this in check and like make sure like this whole like complicated machinery is. Yeah, what well, also it has to do with style, right? I imagine like a show like Gypsy, like that would not have worked if all the violins yeah. were improvising, versus like if you're working on like yeah. something that's like pop or like rock or something that's like more looser and experimental, it makes more sense. I don't know. Yeah. Anyway, the point is 
the point uh, is. So, yes. We so, love Lin-Manuel Miranda. Yes, we do. Um, Wait, what and was our hashtag about Hamilton? Something by Hamilton? Seth Rudetsky by Seth Hamilton. Seth Rudetsky by Hamilton. Okay, I was trying Hashtags, to remember that. Yeah, that, he'll, he'll, he'll be our guest for the Hamilton episode. Okay. Um, <laughs> I, I feel like that's attainable. I think it like, might it's, be. It's, it's, it's going to be difficult, but it's definitely but attainable. Dude, we have like 30 years, so. Yeah. No, because the thing is, there's only like, we have like 100 musicals we're going to talk about plans so the first when we were like actually doing an episode week i was like oh no we're going to finish the podcast in two years before we had a chance to build up any fans but nope we are not going at that certainly pace. not okay. okay anyway so back, back to the show back to the show yeah we're just having a lot of fun today we're just having a lot of fun because we're uh here together in new york that's right um <laughs> okay so basically the show was a hit not like a monster hit like my fair lady which ran 27 17 performances i think was the number uh this only ran for 702 performances but only huh. running 702 performances that's like you know that's it's like not, two years not too shabby yeah um, it did not win any Tonys um, at all. That's bizarre. No zero? Zero. Zero Tonys. What? I didn't look up who beat Merman, but my guess would be whoever played Maria in Sound of Music, if I, which was not Julie Andrews. I don't know if it was uh, Mary Martin or someone or whoever. Mm-hmm. Um, we'll let, we'll, 59. Well, the 1960 Tonys. I mean, and we'll probably also have that information on the, the Sound of Music episode, which we'll have for you guys shortly. But it was still a pretty big hit. Um, a lot of people have played um, Mama Rose, and like it's a great role for uh, you know a, like a middle aged woman who's you know a really great Mary Broadway Martin, singer. The Sound of Music, well done. I nailed it. Woo. Well, good job. Um, so yeah, so, so so a lot. So I'll just like sort of talk about some of the people who have played uh, Mama Rose. Right. I mean, that's the thing. It's like Mama Rose is the role for the role. a woman in musical theater over the age of 40. 40. Also noteworthy, like a white cis woman yes like it's very i mean has, mm. has gypsy ever been done um that's something we, i'd be interested to know like i feel like it's always done with a super not non-broadway or west or western that i know of yeah um so i'm going mm. to tell you all well, that's i'm going to tell you all the main famous people you've heard of who played mama rose and then when we're done with that we're going to speculate about what year sutton foster is going to play mama what? rose that's a great and game. also what year adina menzel is going to play the role i don't know she, that I want, she's gonna I she's gonna get to it first love her i don't know that i want to see that production but yeah, she I might not interested. do it sutton foster absolutely will play 100 percent. so maybe start thinking on that and i'm gonna wow. read through these people okay. um so 1962 um there was a summer stock performance in detroit and cleveland it went between them burned at peters played baby june um, that's wild and not like the young like you know the adult June like in her 20s the one who runs off um, we'll talk about the plot later and Betty Hutton our favorite actress oh, from Any Get Your Gun movie oh my God, she's played so Rose ah, that's um, interesting yeah I would love to see that it's a shame there's no recording she played Mama Rose yeah that would have been great. I bet it was great. I bet it was really bombastic. Because she already replaced yeah. Ethel Merman in And You Get Your Gun for the movie. Right. You know? So she, okay. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, 1962 movie, which we didn't watch, Rosalind Russell. We've talked about her from being in um, Wonderful Town, I think. Oh, yeah. um, okay, okay. You weren't there for that, but I well, was there. fine. Um, 1973, Elaine Stritch uh, was on the West End. Um, and then Elaine Stritch was replaced on the West End by Angela Lansbury, who then brought it to Broadway in 74. Mm. That's an iconic version. I did for, forgot that Angela Lansbury played this role. Okay. Yeah. Um, Tyne Daly played it in 1989 on Broadway. I know I've heard her name before. Um, Tyne Daly? Yeah. She was in Rabbit Hole. She played the mom. Oh. The, the grandma. Oh, 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 oh. Yeah. Okay, okay. Yeah. I, know I mean, Rabbit. she knows. she's known for things beyond Got that. Got it. But no, I, I, yeah, I knew she was yeah, a name. And I've yeah. seen, I haven't seen that version of Rabbit Hole, but I have seen it. Um, not, I haven't seen the movie, though. It looked like it wasn't good. Rabbit Hole. I heard it was good. Anyway, well, movie, okay, okay, sidebar. Whatever. Sidebar. Continue. Um, 1993, there was a TV movie starring Bette Midler. What? Um, there was a 1998 Paper Mill Playhouse version starring Betty Buckley. Hmm. Then there was the 2003 Broadway revival uh, starring Bernadette Peters, who mm-hmm. allegedly uh, was 
acted much more like the real life Rose and played against the Ethel Merman mold to an extent that hasn't previously been done. I remember, I mean, I remember I could tell that like, I mean, I was a young person when I saw it. What year was that? 2003? You were 11. I would have been 11. That's wild. Yeah. Um, you did that fast. Um, she went big for the big number. Like she went big on like the big muffle. Rose's turn. Yeah, I mean, Rose's turn was massive. And actually, I feel like before then, it was like a very restrained performance. She's also like a very petite woman yeah. in a way that like I feel like I've seen... Often she's cast as someone who's like a big, sort of a more, we describe it as like a big broad. Mm. Um, and in a lot of ways, she was just like a much smaller, like more restrained version of it. So yeah, that makes sense that yes. people described it that way. Um, then in 08, Patty Lapone played it on Broadway. And then in 2015, on the West End, Imelda Staunton played it. And you mm. might know her as Dolores Umbridge from oh my God. Harry Potter. Have you seen the video of her doing Rose's turn? I actually haven't, but we can play it. It's later. wild. Um, when we get to the Roses term, we okay. can like compare performances mm-hmm. of it. Amelda Staunton, I think, is very underrated in America. Like she I saw did. her as Mrs. Lovett in a production of Sweeney Todd on the West End, uh. which was unbelievable. So like, it's it's funny. Like she's played like she and Angela Lansbury and Patti Lapone have all played Rose and Mrs. Lovett. So I sort sense. of see them all as like being of this level. Yeah. So when I think of like when I say like I'm not too into Patti Lapone, I think like. I would prefer Imelda Staunton in all these roles. But in America, she never does that. She's doing mm-hmm. all these things on the West End that don't transfer over. I saw her in Circle Mirror Transformation in oh. England. Yeah, she was incredible as Marty. She was just stunning. She's great. With um, another Harry Potter actor in the cast. Anyway. Who? Um, Toby something. What's his face? He plays one of the... Oh, I'll look it up. Keep talking. Okay. We'll um, so, yeah, I will now sort of um, read some quotes from some books about this. <laughs> I'll read some... Uh, Toby Jones is his name, I think. I recognize the name. Do you, who, who was he in Toby this? Jones. He, he was in uh, Circle Mirror with her. He played uh, Harry Potter. Hold on. This is a really fun part of the episode. You can come he voices Dobby. Okay, I was right. Oh. He's the voice of Dobby was in Circle Mirror Transformation. Harry Potter must not it, go it, back it, to Hogwarts. Master's given Dobby a sock. <laughs> then he dies. was really sad. Wait, what? Remember when Dobby died? Oh, yeah. Get the knife thrown in him by Bellatrix? That was unfortunate. They skipped that in the film, didn't they? No, it was the saddest part of the film. That's Wait. how they ended movie seven. Oh, yeah. Because then they go to movie eight. Yeah. Because right. Harry buries him, and then Griphook is like, like, oh, I'm surprised that you, <laughs> that you buried him. I'm doing, I'm doing his Flitwick, Flitwick voice instead of it. The same actor played Flitwick and Griphook. Um, it's um, Warwick Davis. Can we hear, so can we hear a better version of the voice? When he was a grip book, he was like, yeah. I'm surprised. <laughs> you, you buried an elf with your hands. Okay, I'll help you. you break into Gringotts. <laughs> but you a- must give me the sword. <laughs> I need to rewatch this film. And he also played Wicked the Ewok from Return of the Jedi when he was like six. Shit. What a prolific career. Um, Magical creatures. Um, and he was Willow from Willow. Have okay. you seen wait, have you seen the, the Harry Potter? show on Broadway? No, it's hard to get a ticket. You have to like know. really commit to it. I want to. I want, I hate the book. I read the script and I hate it. I didn't, but I... Don't. It's terrible. I, apparently the production's good. They go... They, t- you, they use <laughs> time turners to go like 30 years back in time and change time, which is explicitly non-canon. It's explicitly non-canon. Okay. It's explicitly non-canon. Okay. Jeremy feels strongly. I've heard it's very good. I've heard the Hermione's excellent. Okay. Yeah, I'm sure. I'm sure. Well, all right. Jeremy's going to read some quotes from a book now. Um. So... This is sort of, now we're going to be going into why Gypsy was so... Before I go into these quotes, I guess it's a little bit about Gypsy if you don't know. It's the age of vaudeville. Mama Rose really wanted to be a star when she was young, but wasn't able to be. Um, And so she is an overbearing stage mother for her two daughters, uh, June and 
Louise. Um, and Louise is very shy in the background, and baby June's going to be the star of this vaudeville act. But what Mama Rose doesn't realize is two things. First of all, her daughters are not good at vaudeville, and second, vaudeville is dying. Mm-hmm. Um, and everyone sitting in the audience in 59 would know that vaudeville is dead and that this dream that Rose has is, is going to fail. But Rose is, through sort of sheer force of will and by being a terrible parent, forcing this to happen. Um, and eventually, when the daughters become teenagers, uh, June can't handle it anymore and elopes with one uh, guy who's like in the show to go do their own thing, their own act. And um, Louise, eventually, they just becomes the new star of the show, even though she's not really up for it. And they eventually perform with some burlesque dancers, and her mother kind of pushes her into like, like in a last like crazy desperate move, like sort of pushes her into being a burlesque dancer. Well, barely. It's sort of it's tricky, like actually the agency of kind of whose choice it is in the show, because basically like at the last moment they like push her out and she takes off a glove, and yeah. her mom like doesn't want her to do anything too tawdry, mm-hmm. and it's, it's but then suddenly like it empowers Louise, and then there's this change in her, and she suddenly becomes this incredible burlesque performer and sort of blossoms into this like very sexy, very successful, very famous. Gypsy Rose Lee, yeah. who we've heard of, but it's and sort until of she like, just, yeah, yeah, and she yeah. doesn't need her mother anymore, right? And so her mother sort of has a nervous breakdown where she like realizes like that she can't control her daughter anymore, and she sort of has to grapple with the fact that she did this whole thing for her, not for her. She was she's always said, "I'm doing this for you to make you stars," and then she realizes it was really all for her. It wasn't mm. for her daughters at all, and it sort of ends and it changes how it ends. Like the original version and a lot of versions have it where it's not that they reconcile at the end after Wait, the original book. The, like the original 59 production. Okay. Like, it's not that they necessarily reconcile. It's I think it's almost more real and more heartbreaking and interesting is that, like, Louise is kind of like, okay, like, come on, Mom, come with me. Yeah, and like, sort lets of, her join her a She lets bit. her join her, and I know some productions since then have changed it because, like, we don't want to have the happy ending. We want to have mm. the more realistic ending where they fall out and they, like, never speak to each other again. But I think there's almost something sadder about, like, because so much of what the show is about, and some of these quotes I'll read from books sort of allude to this, is having them sort of come back together at the end is not a fake happy ending. It's basically Louise realizing, like, my mother who was in charge of me for so long and who was such a terrible mother, I am now responsible for her. Mm. I am, she has had a nervous breakdown. She's the sort of, like, crazy washed-up woman. I am rich and famous now. I am kind of responsible for her, and I kind of have to be the mother to her. So this sort of reconciliation they have is, like, so realistic. There's so many families in real life where, like, you rebel against your parents, you have such a bad relationship. But then when your parents are really old, you're like, oh, okay, fine, I have to, like, take care of you. Mm. And yeah. it's very difficult and it's very real. I, it's, I agree with that. And, like, I never saw it as, like, a full reconciliation. I just see it as, a, like, a hand being extended. Yeah. I don't know. kind of reminds me of, have you ever seen Cat in the Hot Tin Roof performed? Not performed. It's this really good version um, with James Earl Jones. Ooh. I think it was Felicia Rashad, I think, Ooh. playing. He was Big Daddy. I should, I'll confirm that. Um, but, um... The point is, there's like Big Daddy's really mean to his wife, and at the end, like he extended a hand to her, and it was like a big choice that actually like wasn't in the book. Anyway, the point is, it's like there's like hope of reconciliation, but it's not like everything's rosy. Like they're still not. Yeah. Okay. So then there have been versions that have changed that ending. Yeah, like just, some of them have just sort of cut the reconciliation, yeah. and it's not a reconciliation. Some of them have sort of just in general cut the idea of them coming back together. Uh, Gypsy Rosalie just walks off stage and then, like, Rose is left alone and, like, old and crazy. Mm. Um, I like how the original version did it. Um, And we'll talk more about, like, the intricacies of that soon. So I'm just going to sort of put this in context. So at this point, we've sort of had this Rodgers and Hammerstein revolution 
but there used to be musical comedies, and then Rodgers and Hammerstein created the musical play, um, which mm-hmm. is what all their shows were. And even the musical comedies after that, like your Andy Get Your Guns and Kiss Me Kate, sort of had to reckon with this integrated musical play format in telling their musical comedies. But there still was this distinct, even though musical comedies have evolved to be more Rodgers and Hammerstein-like, there still is the distinction between musical comedy and musical play. But right about now, right about the 50s, is where like like late 50s early 60s is where we sort of drop that distinction and just start referring to things as musicals because hmm. i think musical as a noun is kind of weird like right. musical is usually an adjective a musical this a musical that we still say musical theater right but at a certain point people just start saying a musical that's right around now hmm. um if larry stemple is to be believed larry and um so this sort of blurring of the lines is where gypsy is so important because you have these shows like Kiss Me, Kate, Nanny, Get Your Gun, and Pajama Game, which were like kind of integrated but straight-up comedies. Gypsy, if not the first, it was the first huge success that is well-known that sort of really is funny and serious. Yeah. Like the Rodgers and Hammerstein shows we talked about have some jokes in them. They might stick in a comic relief character, but they're really play. They're like plays with music and like maybe some funniness. Whereas Gypsy, it's hard to tell from maybe just listening to the soundtrack, but it's very funny. It is funny, but it's like, this is like a poor comparison, but it's just like, I don't know, it's very like human comedy. It's not like sticky. Yeah. It's not like slapsticky. Yes. It's like comedy that's like actually like kind of like scene and it's like scene mm-hmm. based. Yeah. There's something kind of, this is a, re- like, don't hold me accountable for this later, but I was going to say like kind of Chekhovian about it, like the the feel of the comedy of like the characters are all very unhappy and making poor choices that we're watching unfold in these sad ways. And like, that's kind of what the laugh is. Like, I feel like a lot of the laughs are like, there's a scene where Mama Rose is like stealing cutlery at this restaurant yeah. and just like continues to put spoons in her purse. And like, that's the type of comedy yeah. of the show. And it's so real. Know. That's like such a real yeah. person. It, it, that's why it's so great. This okay. MY side story, having a real playwright and Arthur yeah. Lawrence writing the book, it makes such a difference. Gypsy, basically Chekhov. That's the <laughs> story. I mean, yeah, I mean, yeah, maybe that's true. I, I don't know. Um, here's a quote from George S. Kaufman. He wrote this in the New York Times. He was a, like a humorist kind of guy and a playwright um, at the time. And he's uh, complaining about how musicals are not uh, funny anymore hmm. in 1957. So two years before this. And he writes... A funny thing happened to a musical comedy on its way to the theater the other night. It met a joke. Then, before it realized the audacity of such behavior, it took it along to the theater. And presently, there it was in the show. Well, sir, the audience was pretty surprised. Conditions to musical, conditioned to musical versions of O'Neill and to teenagers fighting each other with switchblade knives and killing the hero, they were naturally taken aback. Most of them, embarrassed, had the good taste to look the other way and pretend it never happened. Quite a number broke down and cried, having grown accustomed to crying at musical comedies in recent seasons. Oh my god. But a few people with long memories had the temerity to laugh. Admittedly, they didn't feel comfortable about it. Laughing at a musical comedy? Who ever heard of such a thing? All right. So, He has a bug up his ass, but that's fine. (laughs) That's just sort of an example of, like, people thinking, like, musicals, like, weren't allowed to be funny anymore and serious. There was, like, this sort of divide, and Gypsy did a good job. He would love next to normal. Bridging it. (laughs) Yeah. Um, So... Yeah, so they put Gypsy together, these people. Um, and another thing that sort of made it a break from the past, and this is Alan J. Lerner from Lerner and Lowe, who we're going to talk about a lot more in the future. Um, this is a quote from him talking about Gypsy. He said, What made Gypsy a break with the past was that where previously musical plays were written in the post-Oklahoma modern operetta style, Gypsy told a realistic and emotional story to the beat of the musical and lyrical language of pure musical comedy. Gypsy moved, this is not the quote anymore, Gypsy moved, in other words, to the vernacular wit and boldness of Sondheim's lyrics and the mm. music of Jules Stein. It's funny though, right? Because it's also like kind of old style music 
Okay, this is another really poor reference. I don't know what I'm up to today, but it's making me think of Toy Story. And you know how like Toy Story was like for a new generation of children, but using like the toys of the past, like they did Potato Head and like that's Slinky a, Dog. That's a great analogy. <laughs> Thank you. I, I never would have thought of that. I, this is when you, you first know, said Toy Story. I was like, where, like where is she going with this? <laughs> no, that's actually a great analogy. Right, because it is like it's also about this like dinosaur like of musical theater that's like di- like the vaudeville dying but it's like appealing because it's that generation but it's also for like young people I don't know yeah, yeah I, I totally agree thank you um yeah so it's sort of you have these musical theater con- musical comedy conventions in service of a dramatic story yeah. like it has these sort of like generic like there's the love ballad which is small world isn't it there's Wait, the we dance music also yeah we should um let's, let's take into that let's um start with the first well, so a lot of you know, um, here's a little bit of the two girls doing their sort of vaudeville number. Okay. Uh, well, let, which gets, let me entertain you, yeah? Yes. So this okay. is when they're little girls. Oops. Let me entertain <laughs> this is terrible. You let me see you smile. Before I knew what the show was about, I learned this song on the piano. <laughs> That's funny. Yeah. So you can okay. see they're like cute little girls, and then later on, once she is a burlesque strip teaser, she uh, she changes that song. She re, yeah. Wichita's one and only burlesque theater presents Miss Gypsy Rose Lee. Let me entertain you. So you can sort of see right. there's that situation. Um, what's who's the lady who did it with Patty Lapone, who is so damn good? Patty Lapone? Oh, the no, new one? The, no, no, who's the one who played um, Louise? Uh, what's her face? She won the Tony with Patty. Um, I sort of know who you're talking about. I follow her on Instagram. She's wonderful. Laura, Bena- Laura Benanti. Benanti? That was, yeah, she did Laura that? Yeah. She was in it with Patty Lapone. I'm oh, wow. almost certain. Yeah, Laura Benanti yeah. is, is Louise. She's incredible. Is that what made her famous? I mean, she was already famous. I saw her as Cinderella in Into okay. the Woods when I was young. Got it, okay. Um, with Burnett Peters. Mm. What? Crazy world. Um, the point is, I think that Louise is a deceptively difficult role in this show because it's like her show, right? It's Gypsy, She's, but it's also not. It's clearly not. It's Rose's show. Yeah. Um, and like, I don't know. I'm, I'm thinking right now about like whose perspective is the play told from? And it, it's sort of from both, both actually. Yeah. Anyway. Really from both. So music. Um, so yeah, I mean, that was just some intro to a little bit of the music. Um... But it's, you sort of have this sort of like uh, jazzy, sleazy, yeah. burlesque music in service of this sort of serious story. So it was a really good integration. That's not, I mean, integration not in the sense of integrating a show the way Roger and Hammerstein did, but integration in the sense of taking two different forms yeah, different of theater and combining them. The um, overture to the show, I just have to say, is like one of the most iconic, best overtures of all time. Mm-hmm. I will make that claim. Oh, of, of Gypsy? Yeah. It is a good one. Um, a good one. You want to play a little bit? I just hedged. I said it's one of the best oh. of all time. <laughs> That's I mean, okay. We can. We don't have we're allowed to hedge. Thing, yeah. But it's Wait. iconic. Oh, it's, four, it's almost five minutes it's long. Five. Yeah, we don't have to listen to the whole thing. Yeah. I feel like to really enjoy it, to appreciate the whole thing, you've got you to listen to the whole Just thing. know that it's yeah. out there. Okay. Yeah, it's a good one. Um, I also love the Candide Overture. It's one mm-hmm. of my faves. Mm-hmm. Um, so I here's a fun story. So... So there's actually a big pet peeve of mine in a lot of musicals. This isn't a problem with Gypsy. This is a problem with people. This is a problem with human beings. Okay, great. Um, and um, Jack Viertel in another one of the books I read from talked about this. And I was like, yes, someone agrees with me on this thing. So um, 
a lot of people think that Rose's big sort of breakdown song is Rose's Turn. It's sort of impossible to interpret Rose's Turn as like this inspirational, inspiring song. Mm. Um, but early Rose's Turn is largely, it's sort of a reprise of a lot of different songs from earlier in the show. Yeah. But it's mostly a reprise of um, Everything's Coming Up Roses. And people think Everything's Coming Up Roses as this sort of big like, like yeah, like everything's going to be good. Like curtains up, light the lights, like got nothing here but the heights. You know. I'll, all right, let's play a little section of it first. Yeah. yeah. So this is Everything's Coming Up Roses. I had a dream, a dream about you, baby. It's gonna come This is after true, June's runoff, so Louise they think that we're is like Ro- a new yeah. feature. Rose, yeah. Rose is forcing herself to think that Louise is going to be a star now. Yeah. But she doesn't really believe it. Noting also some fun time signature stuff. I feel like we were talking about that a couple episodes. Yeah, ago. Um, four f- like triplets and whole note triplets basically. And actually, in this book, it's uh, mentioned that Sondheim kind of has alluded that he thought of that idea, but it's not clear. Sondheim often alludes that he thought sure. of musical ideas and things where he just wrote the lyrics. Fair maybe it, he is good enough that we have to maybe consider that it might be true. Yeah. But I he mean, also it does feel Sondheimy. There's something about that that feels yeah. very. Sondheim. Yeah. Would Jules Stein have done whole note triplets like that's eh, unclear. Because um, this guy, Jack Vialto, says that no one else since then has really done it right on the way that she, Ethel Merman did it. They sort of like more put it into the regular time signature. Yeah. And Ethel Merman really liked it. Everything's coming. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, so. Anyway, so that oh, yeah, song. So, so, so that song. So people think that that song is like this big inspirational song. Like like they'll sing it like, like I'm going to come out to a concert. Ethel Merman herself probably felt this way. I'm going to come out to a concert and sing Everything's Coming Up Rose and everyone be like, yay, what a happy song. But it's not what it was like. Um, and here is a quote from this guy. Um, Who's this? Jack Viertel. He wrote the book The Secret Life of the American Musical, which talks about sort of like tropes and archetypes in musicals and like how they're all constructed in similar ways, which is very, very good reading, very quick reading too. <laughs> Um, and it's like not chronological order in time. It sort of just like goes like sh- op- number by number in the show. Like here's this chapter about opening numbers and so mm. on. So he says, um, the song quickly became an anthem of optimism and an American standard. Um, however, in the context of the show that gave it birth, it drips with irony. The blinkered manic declarations of self-delusion from a woman who has taken leave of her senses. As Madame Rose sings, Herbie and Louise cling to each other for safety, desperately afraid of where this all could possibly end. And then the curtain falls on Act One. Mm-hmm. Um, so my pet peeve is that people just like—it's not a huge pet peeve—but I've just noticed that people like will sing this song as some like big happy thing, um, and it's not. It's like actually a song about like this sort of woman who's going crazy. And the other thing that reminds me of this is—and um, I'm telling you, I'm not going from oh, Dreamgirls, which yeah. like Jennifer Hudson That's sang it. That's a really it. good comparison. Uh, Jennifer Hudson sang it in you know like American Idol, and then she played it. Uh, that role on the Dreamgirls movie and everyone like sort of treats it as like this grand song 
everyone treats it as like this grand song. Like, yeah, you tell him. Like, I'm telling you, I'm not going. Like, I'm staying, and you're gonna love me. Like, what a powerful, empowering song by for like a powerful woman. Right. Um, like she's staying. That's not what it is at all. No, it's right. When she's she sings failing. that song in Dreamgirls, she's saying, "I'm telling you, I'm not going." But it's not about whether she's going. She Everyone's has already left her. her. Right, yeah. And so is the Beyonce character. They've already left her. She is cra- she is delusional. <laughs> Just like Rose here is delusional. As this person yeah. says, like, Herbie and Louis are like, oh, God. Like, she's saying everything's coming up, Rose, and you're going to be yeah, a star. But this you're isn't right. what we want. We right. don't want this. So right. I, it's, it's so good in the context of the show, and it sort of frustrates me how people completely misunderstand this song and that song. Okay, well, so the song gets revived later. In Rose's turn, which is the yes. big moment. At this um, point, everyone in the whole world, like, you can't deny the fact that this is the song where she breaks down. She even, breaks down. Even Ethel Merman, who's not, like, a star actress, kind of, like, breaks down and starts stuttering. I mean, know? I love me some Ethel Merman. Yeah. Let's listen to some of her version, and then I did pull up Imelda Staunton's version, mm-hmm. which I do think is worth bringing up. Yes. Um, particularly the way she sings the word lollipops is exciting to me. But okay. first, here's Ethel Merman with Rose's, Rose's turn. turn. Here she is, boys! She's alone on stage. Everyone's left her. She's sort of imagining herself as the star of the story, which she's never really articulated up to this moment, but you realize like maybe she wanted to be a performer, but she missed her chance or something. Yeah, I love her vocal forest flourishes. No! Light the light! Ethel Merman! I love how she says, or you ain't. You like it? So... Good work from Ethel Merman right there. Yeah, I mean, a play about mommy issues for sure. is I want to pull up Imelda Staunton's version yes. of Everything's Coming Up Roses because I think she really embraces the choice you were talking about mm-hmm. um, and just like goes fully mad in it. So this is the one. She's this is the earlier beautiful. version. She is So we're going to skip ahead. Finish. Bell. Wait and see. There's the bell. Follow me. And nothing's gonna stop us till oh, She does look crazy. Yeah, it's cool. So good. Yeah. Okay, I just wanted to pull up that version. It's worth looking up. Um, 
it's Imelda Staunton in the 2015 Gypsy singing Everything's Coming Up Roses. It's really manic. And in a way mm-hmm. that's not like, you know, she, I don't think she's like performing being manic, but she actually has, she has a couple of physical tics in it that you can tell that like, this is a woman who's very unwell. And I appreciate that take on it that like doesn't shy away, away from that. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know, but then also we were talking earlier, like there's the version that's Bernadette Peters that's like much more understated, you know? Yeah. Which is also valid. Women mm-hmm. are like that too. Anyway. Um, we want to play some of like Louise's music maybe or some other songs? Yeah, well, so while we're on Rose's turn, I'll, I'll, there's some couple other uh, Rose's turn anecdotes and then we Great. can sort of like go backwards and look at a little bit look of, a couple, of Louise little, and, then, and then we'll rate the show. And then we'll rate the show. Um, here, let me just get to the page. So also... So also in this uh, Viertel book, uh, he has sort of an anecdote about the writing of Rose's turn. He mm-hmm. says, it wasn't so much written as mind. Late in rehearsal, the director-choreographer Jerome Robbins realized that the ballet he had planned in which Rose would confront all of her characters in crisis moments of her past was wrong for the spot, as the right call in my opinion. Mm-hmm. Uh, back to the book. So a new plan was concocted. Rose would sing about her gradual self. She would sing about her gradual self-destruction. Wait, you, prefer, you would have preferred a ballet? No, no, no. That, that was, was the right terrible. call. Okay, yeah, great. Yeah. That would have been terrible. Uh, yeah. If I said that was the wrong call, I meant it was the wrong call no, to no, do a ballet. Right, you're right. Ballet was the wrong Followable. call. Followable. Okay. Um, according to Sondheim, he and Robbins holed up one night in the long-abandoned rooftop theater that had once been home to Ziegfeld's big midnight frolic shows. Located mm-hmm. at the top of the New Amsterdam Theater, it is now the executive offices of Disney's Broadway operation. Wow. Robbins played Rose. Sondheim played the piano and ad-lib lyrics, which were refined over the next few days. Using snippets of music from the show by the composer Jules Stein, who was not present, they huh. gradually stitched together what has become the signature 11 o'clock number of all time. Accurate. This is the, this That's is the cool. 11 o'clock number. That's cool. That it, so they just, they like... Uh, that makes sense because we were talking about how it's it's all pasted together. Yeah. And he continues, Robbins moved around the stage, stalking Rose's past and present states of mind, while Sondheim plugged in jagged fragments of Stein's music, linking them with a few of his own inventions hmm. until they had zeroed in on Rose's psychological profile, a woman abandoned by her mother who had so tightly controlled her own children that they both have abandoned her, leaving her with nothing at all to cling to except scrapbooks and selective memory. It's hmm. possible that Rose might give up in despair at the end of the number, but even in total emotional disarray, she's indomitable and the mistress of denial. Mm. Having clocked all the defeats and disappointments of life, she makes one brave, if not entirely sane, declaration. From now on, she'll be the star of her own life. This time, for me, she shouts defiantly, for me, for me, for me. Um, and so I think that's really interesting how yeah. it was the youngsters who sort of put that together in like one exciting night. Then, so originally, Louise was going to interrupt Rose right there before the audience could applause because they felt like this applaud. Del- applaud because <laughs> yes, uh, they felt like this didn't deserve like a big applause because yeah. she's like going crazy and Sondheim and the whole team felt very strongly about this and in the original Philadelphia production mm. like the opening performances in Philly that was the case um, and Hammerstein came to visit the show and basically told Sondheim no 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 you have to put an applause in and Sondheim's like no that will betray everything about the show and Hammerstein said look I know I understand but the audience is waiting to applaud, and yeah. if you don't let them applaud then, they're going to spend the entire next number, which is like the key final number of the entire show, waiting to get their chance to applaud. And they'll, that tension without it being released, like they won't be able to like mm-hmm. enjoy, like understand the end of the show. So you've got to let the audience. That makes sense. That. Yeah, it, like it does. I hear that. Like I, I feel like the his idea of like keep like that's very filmic. Like in mm-hmm. the movie version, we wouldn't get to re- applaud. Yeah. yeah, I remember seeing it with. Um, with Bernadette and with Patty, and there's always just like a massive standing ovation after that number. So Arthur Lawrence, when they revived it in uh, 74 with Angela Lansbury, sort of figured out a solution to this. Oh. And I don't know if they necessarily do this in all the modern versions, but what he realized is 
you don't want the audience to think positively of Rose at the end, but you do want them to let them applaud the actress. Mm-hmm. So what he had is Angela Lansbury acknowledges, seemingly acknowledges the fact that she's getting a standing ovation by like separ- like leaving character and bowing. Mm-hmm. But then, once the applause has died down, she continues bowing. And you realize she's not bowing for the standing ovation. Oh, that's brilliant. The character of Rose is delusional and is alone in a room and is bowing to an empty audience and she's fully gone off the deep end. And it uh, sort of... So like implicates everyone... Implicates them in it. Yeah, yeah that's it, nice. impl- it implicates the audience and it allows the audience to get this out of their system and to applaud the actress, Angela Lansbury, while also leaving them with this bad taste in their mouth. So it sort of achieves everything. That's smart. And I don't know if every production Very does smart. it this way. But yeah, that was a really smart... Uh, a really creative thought. Mm. Um, so going back to Louise, who's sort of the character with maybe a growth arc in the show. <laughs> yeah. Okay, well, I was trying to decide what I wanted to play, and it's true that what I really want to listen to is uh, you got to have a gimmick, but maybe we listen to some people, Yeah. which isn't really a Louise-heavy song. But it's like a famous song, so we can play a bit okay. of it anyway. All right. So this is Some People, which is sort of like an early, like uh, Mama Rose has just banded up with Herbie, yeah. who sort of becomes her kind of like, I don't know, it's lover, a, a, lover a manager. Track. That's gonna be a good yeah. role for you in like ten years, <laughs> like twenty years, <laughs> like thirty years. But like, you know, he's he starts as kind of a manager, right? Yeah. That's okay for some people who don't know they're alive. Some people can thrive and bloom, living life in a living room. Oh, there's actually a fun gimmick coming up. Stephen Sondheim himself is going to say some lines soon. So she's asking her father for money, and in the album, Stephen Sondheim said the lines. So that'll come up. That'll come up very shortly. Is this him? No, this is Ethel Merman. Well, no, but like the lines. Yeah, he's gonna he's gonna say he's gonna say you ain't getting eighty eight cents from me. I know this is Ethel Merman. All right, here it is. Oh, okay. Disappointing. <laughs> we'll get to it. Now we have to get to it. We can't cut. We just have to wait. Here, here. Okay. Did you play Papa? Or you just uh, no, just, just for the album. Poor guy who actually played Papa. New routines and red velvet curtains. Get a feather hat for the baby. Photographs in front of the theater. Get an agent. And in jig time, you'll be being whooped in a big time. Oh, what a What good lyrics by Sondheim. Yes, so good. <laughs> no one is rhyming like this man before. I mean, the song is so intricate. Like, it's totally narrative, too. Yeah. yeah. Like, it's all... Oh, here it is. Here it is. Here it is. That's what he said. I swear this time. <laughs> Hey! That's not, he doesn't sound old enough. That's disappointing. He's, young. He's like 20. Yeah. Wow. Okay, thanks for that. Stop it. Okay. So we're going to skip ahead to what I consider the best number in the show. 
Um, right, I mean, we could do if Mama was married. That's not what Should I'm we do Little say. Lamb? Cause <laughs> no, I'm, I'm serious. We should do Little Lamb. Um, okay, this is fine. Louise's very sad. June is still we'll there. To... But she's being neglected, and she only, she has this little lamb who's her only friend in the world. It's very sad. And she doesn't know how old she is because her mom is terrible. It's kind of an impossible song. Yeah. Yeah, that's child. really upsetting. All right. Okay. So we're going to skip ahead to Mom. I think my favorite when song. When if Mama was married? Is that what you are going to say? No. Also, there's a really good song about um, having egg roll Mr. Goldstone. I think. Together, <laughs> no, wherever no, we go. My, that song's also... Okay, wait. We should play that. Sorry. We're going to get to my favorite song, but you it's have to hear this opener. song. This is like a very iconic oh, song. Oh, okay. Hold on. We have to start over. So, what? no, no. Okay. I, I've noticed that we're really getting into 60s orchestrations here. So, like, this sort of opening, like, flute kind of situation, like, with, like, the, them going to act, just listen to it. You'll tell, like, this, like, this sort of orchestration feels like it's, like, the, the transitional music, like, and during an episode of Bewitched or something. <laughs> like, like, seriously. So listen to this. You're not wrong. You would not have heard this a few years ago. Wherever we go, whatever we do. <laughs> Iconic. Yeah, That's iconic. all we need. Yeah. Okay. So here's the situation. The oh, best gimmick. song in the show is there's this great scene where Louise, it's right before she does her first ever burlesque number. They're at this just like crappy, seedy old theater and she's backstage and she's alone and she's bereft and she meets the three strippers who are working there and they're all like, the conceit is they're all a little old for the gig and they all um, are just like these funny, like, I don't know, kind of like. Like, like they've been, they've seen the world, they know yeah. things, and they do, they kind of impart their wisdom about the biz to Louise in this song. <laughs> and it's great. That's all. <laughs> also good, um, it's good for staging. It's a fun number yeah. to watch because they all have gimmicks. They all have gimmicks, yes. Yeah. Grind your behind till your band. Was this like at all? Like, was this scandalous at all? When it Probably not, because I mean, burlesque is already on its way out. Let's skip ahead to when it gets like they get really into it. Trumpet, yeah, my favorite line. Wrong. If you want to bump it. Oh, this is the one oh, who, who one turns like on the lights. Yeah. There's a line if you want to bump it, okay. bump it with a trumpet. That's towards the end. I actually wrote that. I took very few notes on the music in this show. One of them is if you if you gotta bump it, bump it with a trumpet. Let's see if we can find that line. It's towards the end. Do it. 
as as Hannah can see on my notes, I learned one, two, three, four, five. I literally only took nine notes on the music of, of yep. the soundtrack, and one of those nine <laughs> notes is if you've got to bump it, bump, bump it with, it with the, the trumpet. trumpet. It's just brilliant. It's actually just like I don't know. It's also like fun the way the show combines high and lowbrow music. Yeah. Because like this song is sort of in the style of like a song that they would have performed. So while we have songs that are like rich and um, lyrically genius, we have this song which is just ridiculous and fun. Um, and also, I actually think really successful because we're sort of like we love these women by the end of the number, and it sort of like eases our transition into thinking of Louise in this business because even though these women are like also like seem not happy they're like funny and sort of like more real people like they're better mother figures to her than mama roses yeah 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 and you know they really are in some ways um okay so so finishing last note i have on this before we get to ranking we'll see if you have any notes um in this jack beard's book i keep quoting he has a whole chapter called i thought you did it for me mama which is basically (laughs) about how sometimes like it's not a song that sort of ties the whole thing together but sometimes it's a conversation in the book that can tie the whole theme of musical together at the very end, you sort of realize what the whole night's been about. Mm. And sometimes a show might not feel complete or might not feel cohesive if it doesn't have something tying it together. And that can be in a song or it can be in a conversation. And um, in this specific instance, it's um, is this before or after? This is before Rose's turn. Uh, it's when Rose and Louise are having a huge fight. Louise is basically saying, I don't need you anymore. I can go do my own thing. Um, and Rose says, all right, miss, but just one thing I want to know. Here, you want to read, Rose? <laughs> no, you read it. You're doing I'll read right. Rose, yeah. and then you can be, you be Louise. Okay. Uh, okay. Just, all right, miss, but just one thing I want to know. All the working and pushing and finagling, all the scheming and scrimping and lying awake nights figuring, how do we get from one town to the next? How do we all eat on a buck? How do I make an act out of nothing? Uh, what did I do it for? You say I fought my whole life. I fought your whole life. So tell me now, what did I do it for? I thought you did it for me, mama. I don't think she's southern, but yeah. Uh, yeah. That's how it is in my production. Yeah, so. and, um, and yeah, that's and that is what the show is all about. It's like this misunderstanding and, and the mother and the daughter situation. And yeah, no, I mean, I think yeah. this is a nice note to end on. It actually is literally like a show about mother-daughter relationships, um, which is kind of a curious thing to write a musical about, Yeah, actually. Like, in some ways, there's less... There's a lot of plot. Like, there's a lot of story. A lot of things happen over a large number of years in this show, but it's really at its core just about this relationship between these two women. Agreed. Yeah. It's time to rate this thing. Yeah, great. Oh, man. I feel like I'm going to come up... Uh, I'm feeling pretty good about the show, to be honest. All right, take us away. Okay. So first, we are going to all say, and by all I mean the two of us, <laughs> um, was it... No, this is was it important. So how important was this? Is that what we do first? Was it important? Yeah, we do was it important first. Um, we can switch it up today if you want no, to. No, 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 that's good. Yeah. I mean, that's tough, right? Because... It's really tough. Was it important? All right, I have a score in mind. Okay, um, I do two. What are you thinking? I'm thinking a seven. Okay. Because it did usher in like this new style of music, which you pointed out. Um, we see Sondheim continuing on his journey. Like we see um, a lot of big players kind of coming into the mix. So this feels like, even if like the musical itself wasn't deeply revolutionary, it was a, like a, important to a lot of key players' careers. And there was some stuff happening in the show that was. Uh, important. Yeah, and I'm gonna give it an eight, which is oh, very similar to that. Nice. Um, my thought process being that this sort of com- the idea that your musical show is not a musical play or a musical comedy; it's just a musical. This, I mean, it's not like the people who made the show intentionally wanted sure. to change the use of that adjective into a noun. But I feel like this is nevertheless a lot, yeah. the beginning of that. And if you really look at any musical now, there's very few shows that are just 
straight up trying to be comedies or straight up trying to be dramas. More straight up dramas than straight up comedies, but most musicals are some sort of mix. Um, like even just looking at sort of like a normal, like average musical like Waitress. And I don't mean average in terms of quality. I mean like that just strikes me as kind of like, here's like a decent Broadway show it's that like just apple pie, yeah. got put out. Like, so this, let's just make a decent musical and it's mm-hmm. going to be Waitress. Like there's funny parts, there's serious parts. That's kind of par for the course now. Right. Um, whereas back then you'd either, you'd feel boxed in maybe to one or the other comedy or play. Mm. And now, now it's sort of, you expect that you're going to get laughs and seriousness in every show. So this and, really like tipped that scale. Yeah. Okay. Um, so yeah, and because this was like sort of the beginning of a lot of people's career. So part of me wonder, worries that 8 might be a little too big. Also, okay. just the fact that people call it the best of all time means that it ha- must have had some sort of impact. So Fair enough. There you go. Uh, so now we're going to do Was It Good? Compared to the other shows at the time, how good was it? Mm-hmm. In our opinion, how good was it? No. Like if we, maybe if we were around in 1959 with our maybe – sensibilities but translate into 59 <laughs> well i'm thinking about the tonys which complicates things don't think never think about the tonys never think about, never think about the tonys um, okay was it good in i'm gonna give it i'm gonna give it a nine okay yeah yeah i feel i'm worried i'm giving it too low i was gonna give it a seven well that's okay i came in low for the other one um is a seven too low i think trust your gun okay okay yeah no because it's good but like it's not my favorite of the one. Oh, I think that's too low. I gave it a nine. We're gonna even out at an eight, which is still a high score. Okay, should I? I, I, I might, maybe I want to switch it to an eight. I mean, live your life. I'm gonna switch it to an eight. All right. Because at, at the time, I'll give it a lower score for do I like it now? Because okay. at the time, like, yeah, I don't like it as much as like West Side Story or South Pacific, but like, it was really good. Yeah. It is really good. And the thing is, I haven't seen it live in a while, and it's really good live. It's amazing. I mean, it's, it's really good live. Okay. Yeah, and like it was. I mean, I'm thinking too about like there's some. We didn't even talk about like choreography in the show. There's like a lot of fun burlesque numbers in the yeah. show. There's an actual striptease in the show. Yeah. You know, I mean, I okay. don't know. I don't yeah. know if that's for what's good, everybody's bread and butter. People but. might even be upset at me for eight being too low, but like I feel like eight's a decent. I've given it two. No, some it's people don't okay. like Gypsy. Yeah. Okay. Um. Okay. Now, is it good today? I'll go first this time. I'm going to give it a seven. Is it good so today? One, yeah. So one point lower because when I when I see it, I do really like it. I'm not spending the time to think like, when's this going to be over? Like this yeah. is so dated. Like, it's a seven. Like, there's tons of musicals I prefer that are eights, nines, and tens. But this is undeniably still a good musical. Um, unlike a lot of other musicals from this era, it's not problematic. So you can revive it until Kingdom Come. Um, <laughs> is it? Yeah, well, okay, I have to think about that. Like, like the mother is problematic to her daughters. But right. it's not like a racist, sexist kind of thing. There will be problematic mothers forever. And this is yeah. going to speak to people, speak to mothers and daughters and sons and everyone forever yeah. it would be cool if they did it with a more diverse cast yes that's something i that's not an issue with the show it's an issue that's, with, that's an issue an issue with, with casting. casting yeah yeah the show itself um i feel like could be done forever and mm-hmm. i feel like it's always going to be a seven and, and i don't give it higher because the music doesn't grab me super much as well as much as a lot of these other shows i'm gonna give it a uh how is it today i'm gonna give it a mm, i'm gonna give it a seven and a half okay yeah I like it a lot. I think it holds up for me in a weird way. But also, like, yeah, it's not my it's not my ten. Like, it's not my ideal. Yeah. So this actually did really well. It got forty six point five, um, which actually bumps down. Uh, my Fair Lady had been in fifth place. Oh. But now with a forty six point five, this is our new sixth place show. The top, huh. the new top five is West Side Story, South Pacific, Oklahoma, Guys and Dolls, and Gypsy. 
Fascinating. She's a great top five. Todd Bonapane still keeping guys and dolls up keeping there. Keeping guys and dolls up there. It's going gonna, it's gonna to stay for a while. Um, and then when we do our sort of thing where we take into account the length of the run of the show, um, this ran for a quarter the length of the longest running show so far, which is My Fair Lady. So it gets an additional yeah. 2.5, uh, which bumps it up to a score of 49, um, which on our ranking of that would put this in ninth place. That's such so. an interesting thing. So also just worth mentioning, I'm looking at our um, chart. This is our 20th episode. Oh, yeah, yeah. Mazeltov. Well, thank yeah. you. Yeah. Mazeltov to you as well. Our, our 20th musical, at least, because West Side Story was two episodes. That's and, we, true. and we've done some other stuff. Yeah. But yeah. Okay. But still, our 20th musical. Yeah, wow. There you go. Um, it sort of feels like we should have talked about more than 20 musicals as we've made it so far, but I guess a lot of those other ones we stick into the mini sodes and things. Yeah, come on know. now. Come on. That's, that's remarkable. That's yeah, an no, achievement. Yeah, 20's good. I'm, yeah, this is great. This All is, right. Gypsy's a good one for. For number 20. Yeah, we're starting to do musicals that people have heard of. Yeah. You know, we, We've been there for a little bit of time. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm satisfied with its place in fifth. I personally do not think this is the greatest show of all time, mm-hmm. but I get why people say that, so I think a top five berth is a great spot. It will fall out of that once we get to Sondheim. Believe oh, it. I can't wait. Um, I can't wait. I, I can't, Sondheim. Yeah. He's coming. Yeah, a lot of these in the top five, I can imagine maybe getting bumped. Um, Just to check in, our current top five, number one with a score of 54 is West Side Story. Number two with a score of 52, South Pacific. Uh, number three with a score of 51, Oklahoma. Uh, tied with Guys and Dolls, also with a score of 51, followed by Gypsy, 46.5. Yeah. Um, and I suppose if we're counting Oklahoma and Guys and Dolls as uh, holding the number three spot together, which one could argue My Fair Lady is behind Gypsy with a score of 45. Yeah. So. Um, so I, I'm, I'm happy right now. I think this was a good thing. Um, <laughs> I think this was a good thing. Yeah. So I guess, uh, we'll see you guys. I'm not sure what show we'll be doing next because there's so many, uh, musicals in 59, maybe Sound of Music. Um, we might've, I was considering doing Sound of Music first and then saving Gypsy for afterwards because Gypsy's more experimental, mm. but I really just want to watch the Sound of Music movie because I love it so much and I didn't have time to devote like three hours to watching it before this. Such, that's going to be fun. All right. Yeah. Let's do a shout out to my friend, Sean who's going to be joining us at some point in the future when some we talk point. about Hello, Hello Dolly. Dolly. Yeah. Uh, thanks for listening in. Um, cool. Good to be in New York with you, Jeremy. Mm-hmm. Oh, and uh, shout out to our Brazilian listener who tweeted to us that what? she agrees that Robert Preston was wearing a toupee. In, <gasps> oh my God, this is huge. Music Man, yes. Who's this listener? She's from Brazil. You want me to look yeah, up? Yeah, hold on. Pause while we look this up. Yeah. This is thrilling. And also shout out to uh, Thaisa, um, at CabralTH4 on Twitter, who tweeted to us that she agrees that um, Robert Preston was wearing a toupee in The Music Man. Thank you so much. Yeah, I'm, I'm glad we're not the only ones. <laughs> Jeremy replied, thank you. There's no way that old man has such healthy hair. Yeah. Um, there you have it. That's fun. Thanks for listening. Mm-hmm. Uh, she says, I still haven't been able to finish the EP, but after, I think it's a toupee. Yeah, she did extensive <laughs> Googling for us. I, I IDK, appreciate that It work. just doesn't look... Real to me. So yeah, you thank go. you so much. Well, um, we made it on Twitter. Yeah, I'm you glad that people from Brazil are all the show. Right. Um, all right, bye everyone. Bye everyone. Have a good Just time. Just you wait. That lucky star I talk about.